very grateful for Pastor Eric bringing the word last Sunday as we were away for a few days. I'm blessed to be back with you today and back in the Gospel of Luke. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 22. Our text today is going to cover from verse 31 through 53. The last part I'll make just a little bit of reference to. Uh, The first part I'll introduce, and then our main area of focus will be verse 39 through verse 46, which we'll read here in just a moment in a message entitled, Prayer in the Midst of Suffering. Jesus met with his disciples there in the upper room, and they celebrated the Passover meal. It was there that he told them of his betrayal that was at hand by Judas, which would fully come into focus in verse 47 and following. And it was there that he instituted the Lord's Supper with a focus on his body and his blood. Several conversations took place in the verses which follow the scene in the upper room. And I want to provide some context and summarize the first of those conversations and then devote our time to the conversations Jesus had with his disciples and then most especially in the conversation that he had with God the Father in prayer. Jesus had a conversation with Peter in verses 31 to 34, and he told Peter there that Satan had asked to sift him like wheat. That was an illustration that was pointing to the fact that wheat was sifted to separate the genuine wheat from other items that may have gotten mixed into it. But Satan wanted to sift Peter like wheat for nefarious purposes. He wanted to destroy him if possible. And there's a similarity here in Satan's attempt to prosecute Job before the heavenly court that we read about in the book of Job. Jesus can always see the unseen. He knew the spiritual battle that Peter was in, and he knows the spiritual battle that we are in as well. Satan wanted to defeat and to destroy Peter, and he wants to defeat and destroy us when we follow Jesus. So what he does is he supplies opportunities for failure. And in supplying those opportunities for failure, he actively resists God's plans and also God's purposes for his people. And Peter was a lot like we are sometimes. He overestimated his ability in his own strength to resist it. And he said that he was ready to go with Jesus to prison and even to death. But Jesus, seeing the unseen, fully knew the situation that was at hand. So Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail. Jesus knew that Peter was about to deny him, and he said he would do so three times before the rooster crowed at the dawn of the next day. Peter's faith would falter but it would not fail. And I've got good news for you today. If you are in Jesus, your faith may falter, but it will never ultimately fail. And the reason it will not ultimately fail is because when you are in the hands of Jesus, he promises that nothing could pluck us out of his hand. God finishes the good work in us that he began. And the work that he began by grace will be completed by grace and by his power. And it's a great blessing to know that Jesus prays for us as his people. Just as he prayed for Peter, he prays for us. Hebrews 7 and verse 25 says, Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives 
to intercede for them. That means that as a child of God, the Son of God is interceding on your behalf, specifically, personally, according to what your need is. Jesus then tells Peter that when Peter returns to him after his faith falters, which he would, that he was to strengthen his brothers. In other words, he was to strengthen God's people. Jesus knew the reality of what was to come, but he also knew that he was going to restore Peter, and that's recorded in John chapter 21. Jesus then had a conversation with the disciples about what was ahead in verses 35 to 38. And he asked them a question that turns out to be a rhetorical question because he asked them when he sent them out before without money bag or traveling bag or sandals, if they lacked anything. And the answer was, not a thing. But Jesus knew that after he was gone, after the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, he knew what he was sending them into and he knows what he's sending us into. He knew that they would need provision and protection And he knows that we need provision and protection. And the reason being is that we are sent into a spiritual battle. We're engaged in a spiritual warfare. And the impending death of Jesus was a reminder of the fact that Jesus would be counted among the lawless on our behalf so that we might be forgiven and have right standing with God and live out the purpose that God called us to according to his will. So it was from the upper room within the walls of the city of Jerusalem that they made their way out to the Mount of Olives on the eastern side of Jerusalem. They came to the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane being the place where Jesus likely frequented during his earthly ministry. And Jesus had a conversation with his disciples when they arrived at Gethsemane, followed by the conversation that he had with God the Father in prayer. So let's begin reading in Luke chapter 22 and verse 39. And this is what the Word of God says. He went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he told them, Pray that you may not fall into temptation. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and began to pray. Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he got up from prayer and came to the disciples, he found them sleeping, exhausted from their grief. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all describe the experience of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke's gospel, in his account, interestingly, is somewhat shorter than that of Matthew and Mark and also includes some unique details. The olive grove of Gethsemane is at the foot of the Mount of Olives and it was bordered by the road that came up from the Kidron Valley. The historian, the Jewish historian Josephus wrote that 256,000 lambs were sacrificed in the temple during the Passover in one year. I want you to imagine 256,000 lambs being sacrificed. And now we come to the time when the Lamb of God was preparing to offer himself as the once and for all sacrifice. He's preparing to offer himself on the cross 
so that those sacrifices would be needed no more. And he was willing to give himself on our behalf. So that blood from the animals was channeled down to the Kidron Valley on the east side of the temple in Jerusalem as a strong reminder that a sacrifice was required. But now Jesus is about to finish the work. Gethsemane literally means oil press or olive press. The Mount of Olives was so named because there were a lot of olive trees that grew there on the hillside, on the side of the mountain. Gethsemane was probably a private garden with a wall around it, and maybe the owner was in the business of pressing the oil from the olives for sale. Uh, And it likely contained an oil press that would be used to actually crush the olives and then extract the oil uh, so that they could use it for cooking and for other things. They would use these heavy stone slabs, and they would lower those heavy stone slabs down onto the olives, and the oil would be crushed out of the olives that had already been prepared for that purpose, and they would put it into those clay jars. Here's the parallel. Just as Gethsemane was the olive press, the Lord Jesus was experiencing the weight of what was ahead of him. He was experiencing the pressure of the purpose for which he came to the earth. And no doubt, during the Passover, there were thoughts of sacrifice and redemption that would be on the minds of the people. The blood from the sacrifices was visible to the people, but now the Son of God was willing to submit himself to the ultimate pressure, to the ultimate sacrifice, so that we could receive forgiveness and reconciliation and redemption from God. R. Kent Hughes referred to the significance of the garden and uh, in it, I like the way he does it because he, he draws a parallel between the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, the first Adam began life in the garden. Christ, the last Adam, came at the end of his life to a garden. In Eden, Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, the Savior overcame sin. In Eden, Adam fell. In Gethsemane, Jesus conquered. In Eden, Adam hid himself, but in Gethsemane, our Lord boldly presented himself. Now, I want you to imagine just for a moment the mood that must have been present that night in Gethsemane. As we place ourselves here in the narrative of the text, we imagine that Jesus was fully aware of what lay ahead of him, and we can feel the heavy sorrow the sorrow even unto death. The cross was looming large. And death on the cross, remember, was torturous. The beating that would precede it, the piercing of his hands and his feet with the nails, his exposure to the elements, the humiliation and the mocking that would come from the crowds, and the excruciating pain. The Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world was in the garden preparing to offer himself as the once and for all sacrifice for our sins, and he knew that the time was at hand. I want us to focus in these minutes that we have together on three aspects of prayer from the Garden of Gethsemane in the midst of suffering. Billy Graham wrote in his book, Who's in Charge of a World that Suffers?, He says, prayer was as natural as breathing for our Lord, and it should be the same for us. 
If prayer is an integral part of our lives, when a crisis comes, we've already prepared those lines of communication. In the beginning, man was fashioned to live a life of prayer in fellowship with God and in humble dependence upon him. And when we pray, we are fulfilling God's purpose for our lives, realizing our spiritual potential. And as someone has said, prayer is the highest use to which speech can be put. The first aspect of prayer is that we should pray to not enter into temptation. Verse 40 tells us when he reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not fall into temptation. Jesus draws attention here at the outset uh, to the need to pray and the need to not fall and the importance of not entering into temptation. Now, basically what that means is that we want not to give in to temptation. We want not to succumb to the power of evil. So what he's doing is he's instructing them and us not just to pray against sin. He's instructing them and us to pray against temptation. And here's the reason. If you wait only to pray against sin, you've waited too late because you're already in the middle of it. You've already mixed yourself up in it. You've already gotten yourself in a bind. You've already fallen into the pit. So Jesus is telling us, you've got to take a step back from that. And as you take a step back from that, you are praying not to enter into temptation itself because temptation leads to sin. Earlier in his ministry, the disciples had come to him and asked, Lord, teach us to pray. It's recorded in Luke chapter 11 and verse 1. And then he included in the petition in verse 4, lead us not into temptation. Now, I assure you that the prayer not to enter into temptation is a prayer that God delights in. It's a prayer that God will answer. And in it, we are coming before God in humility, and we are acknowledging that we are weak and we are vulnerable, that we tend to get ourselves in difficult situations, and we're also realizing sin itself and the power that it can have over our lives. Remember, James 1 and verse 13 makes it clear that God himself tempts no one. Each person, in fact, is tempted when they're lured away and enticed by their own desires. And God delights in keeping us from temptations. John Owen wrote that entering into temptation has two distinctive features. First, Satan becomes more earnest than usual. There are times when he intensifies his assaults against you. Not every day in the Christian life is the same. There seem to be days and seasons of life when all hell breaks loose. Second, Owen says, the heart is unable to escape the trap of temptation. Often you will be able to brush off temptations without any serious difficulty, but there will also be times when a particular temptation will gain power and vigor within you, and you will find yourself divided, wanting to reject the temptation, but at the same time, unable to free yourself from it. So let's think about our own experience here just for a moment. There are some days where things go splendidly. You're feeling like you're living in the midst of spiritual strength and power. You're prayed up and the word is central in your life and the temptation comes and you reject it. You want nothing to do with it. It's not a big deal. It's not difficult for you to do that. And when you reject the temptation, it's gone and you don't succumb to sin. However, as Owen says, 
There are those days where it seems like all hell has broken loose. And you feel like you are experiencing a spiritual onslaught. And you feel the power of the spiritual enemy coming against you. And it's in those moments that you are the weakest and the most vulnerable. And Jesus knows that those moments and those days are going to come. Sometimes it's even seasons of time that come where we're facing a particular temptation or a series of temptations, and it seems like it just keeps coming and it keeps coming. So Jesus said, how do you prepare for that? You pray not to enter into temptation. That's a prayer of preparation, and it's a prayer of resistance. So when you pray against temptation, it means that you want to avoid it. What you're saying is, God, I am here to engage in the fight. I'm going to put on the full armor of God. I'm going to get ready. I want to be filled with the Spirit. I want to have your word in my heart. And I want to be careful not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because after all, the pleasures of sin, the Bible says, are fleeting and they're short-lived. But the consequences are severe. I like the way Colin Smith illustrated this in terms of what it means to enter into temptation and how we put ourselves in a difficult spot at times. He said, imagine that a salesman knocks at your door and you open the door and he tells you what he's selling. At that point, if you're not interested, it's not hard to say, sorry, I'm not interested. Try the people next door. But suppose you invite this person into your home. Now he sits down in your living room and he makes his presentation. He shows you the product. He talks to you about how much you need it and how much better your life is going to be if you have it. And all of a sudden, a little relationship is formed, and your mind and your heart become engaged. And it's more difficult to say no. And Smith says, this is what it's like to enter into temptation. You're engaged with it. You're connected with it. You let it into your living room. It's sitting down there in your midst. The temptation has landed in your flesh. It's drawing you away in your affections. And it grows in power. And the reason that it grows in power is because it has gained a position in your soul. And Jesus is saying, don't let temptation gain a position in your soul. Instead, pray that you would not enter into it. Pray to avoid those contexts that could be problematic in your life. And you got to know your battles, practically speaking. We're not all tempted the same. Some things that bother you and are just heavy weights for you and you really struggle with, other people think it's nothing. It's not a problem at all. But things that might not bother you are also bothering other people. So if you know what your battles are, then you can be careful not to put yourself in a situation where you're going to be more prone to give in. And you got to know when you're most vulnerable. It could be when you're physically tired or emotionally spent that you're most vulnerable, or when you've gone through a particularly heavy time of stress, and that's going to make you more vulnerable as well. You need to know that there is safety in running to Jesus. There's protection to be found there in times of temptation, and there's danger in running away from him. But you know what the spiritual enemy wants you to do? He wants you to run away from him. He wants to convince you in those moments that your faith is not enough. He wants you to think that somehow 
that one time of giving in is not going to be that big of a deal. He wants you to think that it's okay because you're tired or because you're emotionally spent or because you're in a time of stress. When you start thinking like that, he's got you right where he wants you. And Jesus says, pray to not enter into temptation. The second aspect of prayer is that we should pray and surrender to the will of God. You'll notice again here in verse 41 and 42 that it says that Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and he began to pray. I think this is likely an eyewitness account of one of the disciples who reported uh, what took place to Luke. Uh, Jesus prayed just a stone's throw away and his posture in praying should not be overlooked because he knelt to pray. The custom of the time was to pray standing with eyes raised to heaven. But this was no ordinary occasion. This was a most solemn occasion. This was a most difficult hour. So Jesus kneels down to pray, and he prays to God the Father just as he instructed us to pray to our Heavenly Father. There's a story that was told in Our Daily Bread some years ago about a Roman emperor who was once parading through the streets of the imperial city. And he was enjoying a victory celebration as it was. And the Roman legionnaires lined the parade route to keep back the cheering people. And at one place along the route was a small platform that was positioned perfectly for the royal family to sit. And as the conqueror approached, his youngest son, who was just a small boy, jumped down and he begins to make his way through the crowd and tries to run out and meet him. One of the soldiers met him and said, you can't just do that. Don't you know who's in that chariot? That's the emperor. And the boy quickly responded, he may be your emperor, but he's my father. This is the access that we have to the throne of God, to come to him as our father. Jesus never deviated from the father's will. He said in John 8 and 28 and 29, I do nothing of my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone for, listen to this, I always do what pleases him. What a word that Jesus said, I always do what pleases him. Would that not be a good guiding principle of our lives that if we want to be faithful, that our goal should be that we always do what pleases the Father. That's our goal. Because after all, it's the will of God that we be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So if we're being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and he always did what pleases the Father, then we should desire to always do what pleases our Father. Now, admittedly, there is a divine mystery going on here. Because there's communion between God the Father... And God the Son. This communion was an eternal communion. God is one in essence, and He is three in person God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, co equal and co eternal. And yet now we're given insight in this holy moment, the holiest of moments of the communion that is taking place between the Father and the Son. Charles Williams noted the son is co-equal with the father, yet the son is obedient to the father. 
a thing so sweetly known in many relations of human love is beyond imagination present in the midmost secrets of heaven. Jesus as fully God and fully man was in great sorrow and agony over what he had to do. And he asked the father in that moment if it was possible and if the father was willing to take the cup from him. It's been said that this cup was steaming with a brew that was so awful and so fearful and so dreadful and so unbearable and so appalling and so horrendous that Jesus was revulsed and convulsed. How could he drink of such a cup? And yet he knew that he would be bearing the penalty for the weight of sin Think about this. The perfect, sinless Son of God, who the Bible says was made sin for us. So in this cup was the laying of the sin of the world upon our Savior and the full wrath of God. This was the cup of wrath, judgment of that came from God upon sin. And God the Father would, in effect, turn away from Jesus the Son. And Jesus, in agony, was anticipating what was going to take place on the cross. But then he prayed, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Do not miss the significance of what took place in that moment. Jesus never intended anything else than to fully do the will of the Father. And he fully surrendered to the will of the Father, and he fully surrendered to the cross. And he did so on our behalf. Psalm 37 and verse 7 says, Surrender yourself to the Lord and wait patiently for him. God is calling us to a life of surrender as we follow Jesus. And I want you to get in view here what this life of surrender looks like for the follower of Jesus. It, first of all, requires surrender and repentance and faith. Initially, when we turn from our sins and we turn to the Savior and we enter into the family of God and we begin to be followers of Jesus, it's an initial surrender. But then it is a daily surrender as we grow in our faith. That we are yielding ourselves up each moment of every day as we awake in the morning and we pray and we come before the throne of God. We're coming before the throne of God in a prayer of surrender. It's not just the initial surrender, but now your daily surrender is evidence of the fact that you initially surrendered. And you're walking with him daily in surrender, a continual attitude of your life. And often that's going to call you to a place where you make a specific surrender to the will of God for your life. Our collective purpose is similar, but it's not exactly the same. And I think the diversity of our spiritual gifts that God gives to us is evidence of the fact that God gifts us and calls us with a specific calling on our lives to collectively be a part of the body of Christ, to carry forward the mission of God, to glorify Jesus Christ and to make him known. And along the way, he calls us to those mileposts in life where we have to surrender whatever it is that God has in front of us that his will would be done in our lives. 
2 Corinthians 5 and verse 15 says, He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So I want you to know today that the Christian life is a call upon you to say, I am no longer living for myself. I am living for the one who died and was raised for me. So that means the gospel is applicable to every single area of life. And that means that God has given us his spirit to dwell in us, to empower us and to encourage us and to instruct us. And that means that God has given us his word so that we'll know what to do. And our desire should be to the Lord. We want to do your will in every area and bring honor to your name. Now the scripture indicates here that an angel was sent to strengthen Jesus One commentator said, we do not know if the angel came with a special message from the Father or if his presence reassured Jesus of the Father's care or if he mopped his brow or gave him a drink of cool water to refresh him. But somehow the angel strengthened Jesus in response to his prayers. And I want you to know that when you come before the throne and you surrender your will to the will of the Father, What God will do for you is he will gift you with peace and contentment and rest. There's rest to be found in the will of God. But there's also a clear purpose. And to surrender to the will of God means that you place everything in your life under the lordship of Christ. You take your marriage and you place it in God's hands. You take your children and you place them in God's hands. You take your career and you place it in God's hands. You take your resources and you place them in God's hands. You pray and surrender to the will of God. And he hears your prayer. The third aspect of prayer is that we should pray fervently and stay alert. Verse 44 indicates being in anguish. He prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. This word anguish is translated also as agony. The word is found only here in the New Testament. It carries with it the meaning of a severe struggle, or or think about it maybe like a, a pressure of the spirit. What we have in view here is the height of grief and distress. So what did Jesus do? He prayed more fervently. Fervent prayer is deep, focused petition on God. And sometimes when we get in that moment and it seems like the darkest hour that we've ever experienced or the heaviest weight that we've ever carried or the greatest stress that we've ever faced, our tendency is to shut down and to isolate ourselves from God when in fact when those moments come, the best thing for us to do is to lean into that and to ask the Lord to help us even more fervently. And in it, we grow in our faith in him. And the scripture says that his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. The commentator Clark said there have been cases in which persons in a debilitated state of body or through a horror of soul have had their sweat tinged with blood. Cases sometimes happen in which through mental pressure the pores can be so dilated that the blood may issue from them so that there is a bloody sweat. Jesus was praying fervently, and the sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. 
And then he got up from the prayer and he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. Why were they sleeping? They were exhausted from their grief. Instead of praying, they slept. I think we could probably find ourselves here in this narrative. So Jesus woke them and he encouraged them to pray. Cyprian said, if he prayed who was without sin, how much more it becometh a sinner to pray. And the struggle of prayer gives us the strength to do what God called us to do. Do not miss this point. The struggle of the cross was won in the prayer of Gethsemane as Jesus further submitted himself to the will of God the Father on the cross. Back in Luke chapter 21 and verse 36, Jesus said, Be alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. To be alert means to have the awareness of a guard at night. To have the awareness of a night watchman. A night watchman has to be diligent. In the daytime, a a watchman can see far away. He can see the, the difficulties that are coming. He can spot them from a distance. But at night, everything is more intense. Have you ever noticed that when you're going through those seasons of grief or distress or difficulty in your life, it just seems like everything is 20 times worse at night? At least that's my experience. My problems are far greater at night than they are during the daytime. And I feel that weight. And spiritually speaking, it doesn't matter if it's night or day as far as the sun goes. But what matters is that we are alert to the difficulty and the danger of the moment. The scripture says in Colossians 4 and verse 2 that we are to devote ourselves to prayer. And we are to stay alert in it with thanksgiving. But here's the problem. We are so easily distracted. And sleepiness overcomes us. And I think this is a comparison here, not only of the physical experience that we can have, but of the spiritual experience that we can have, that we can become careless and let our guards down and make ourselves easy targets for the spiritual enemy when we get spiritually sleepy and we're not alert and we're not praying fervently. Peter would write later in 1 Peter 4 and verse 7, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be alert and watchful in your prayers. If you want to stay faithful, you have to learn to pray. And when you pray, the Spirit will enable you to resist temptation. And the word is, get up and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. The victory has already been won. It was won By our Lord Jesus Christ at the cross and in the power of his resurrection. It's certain. God's plan and purpose for your life is certain because God's going to carry out his will. But you want to walk closely with him as he does that. And you want to lean on him to help you in your hour of need. I close with this story from World War II. The Italian forces were driven out of Eritrea in North Africa. And in an effort to make the harbor unusable uh, to the Allies, the Italians took great barges, filled them with concrete, and caused them to be sunk across the entrance to the harbor. 
When the Allies entered, their problem was to remove those barges in order that the harbor might become more usable. So they did it in an ingenious way. They took massive gas tanks that held hundreds of thousands of gallons of fuel in the oil refineries. They sealed those tanks so that they would float. And they caused them to be floated over the place where these barges had been sunk. And when the tide was out, they chained the tanks to the barges. And when the tide came in, the barges were lifted by the tanks floating with the tide. And the barges were pulled from the sinking sand at the bottom of the bay. And it was then a relatively easy matter to remove them. And the harbor became useful again. I want you to think about the power in that. The barges were connected to the tanks. The tanks were dependent on the tides. The tides carried tremendous dynamic power. Spiritually speaking, in faith, we are connected to Jesus, the crucified and risen Lord. And the full power of the God of the universe is active in our lives. And without him, we are in sinking sand. But in him, He meets us at our greatest point of need, and when he meets us at our greatest point of need, he delivers us in power, and it's all for his glory. It's all for his honor and for the sake of the name of Jesus. I want us to bow our heads together for a moment as we come toward the close of this service. The invitation and response is two parts today. Here in just a moment, after I pray, Pastor Eric is going to play and sing, and we're going to sing along with him and and pray. But the first part of the invitation is that if you have never repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ by faith for salvation, that you might trust in him today. Say, Pastor, I, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be forgiven, and I want to follow Jesus with my life. You can take that first step of faith today. And become a disciple of Jesus. Believing in the crucified, risen, and reigning Lord. But I know enough to know that there are many burdens and weights and pressures and stresses that are present in this room. Some may have come because of physical trials that you're going through. Health crises that you were not expecting. And God knows what your need is. Some have come because you've gotten sleepy spiritually and you need renewed. You need to be refreshed. You need to be on a new direction for the Lord. Others are because of obstacles and crises that you're dealing with. Might be something in your family. Might be a job burden, a financial need. God cares about all of these things in our lives, and he's not left us alone. So here in just a moment, as we sing, we're going to do something we haven't done in a while. I'm going to encourage you to come to the front where these steps are as the Lord leads. Last year and a half has been so strange, and we've been so disconnected. What we desperately need is just a renewal of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our church. And it could start today. If you're physically able and desiring to do so, I invite you to come and pray here at the front. You can come and kneel, or if you're not physically able and you want to come and stand and pray, you can do that, or you can pray where you are. It's just however the Lord leads you. But it's going to be open to do that. We'll sing through the song a couple of times. 
Maybe God's stirring your heart to come closer to him. Jesus, this word is all about you. It's about your coming to fulfill the will of the Father to seek and to save the lost. It's about your willingness to drink the cup of wrath, to bear the weight of the sins of the world, about your willingness to go to the cross and endure the shame and the pain of it all, to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in you. We make this word about nothing else except you, Jesus. But we thank you that it does apply to our lives. And that as you instructed your disciples to pray that they not enter into temptation, you are instructing us to do the same. Help us to pray in that way. Help us to pray fervently with passion. Help us to pray with purpose in our lives. And God, now, whatever the needs are, we do pray for a stirring of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for this privilege to be able to kneel before you to pray. And I ask you, Lord, now that people would feel a freedom to come as we sing for a few moments and share with you whatever's on their heart. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.